This is Sustainability Explored and me, Anna, your podcast host. Thanks for being with me today. As we are exploring different angles of sustainability here, I thought of the importance of communication. It's not a secret that communication is the key to success. And if we want our businesses, initiatives, NGOs to be sustainable, raising awareness, sharing, which is caring, and properly communicating with our audience is an integral part of the process. My distinguished guest today is Laura Fire Tannenbaum, an innovator in science communication, contributor to the science section at HuffPost, Forbes and Forbes, Um, She is a public speaker and writer. Laura develops interactive new media products to engage and educate students, teachers and professionals in climate and environmental science. Her team won five Webby Awards, the internet industry's highest honor for the best science website and best green website. I discovered Laura's TEDx talk, Game On, Climate Change, Game On, on YouTube. And around the same time, my friend Lincoln Blevins, who you might remember from our episode number 12, Every Job is a Sustainability Job, of this very podcast, suggested I reach out to her. So here we are. I'm very excited to be interviewing Laura today. While we are waiting for our guest, a small musical pause. Hello. Today, my guest at the Sustainability Export is Laura Fire Tannenbaum, a globally recognized innovator in science and climate change, climate communities, former senior science editor of NASA Global Climate Change website at NASA's Jet Lag. Sorry, I'm saying jet, jet lag because I'm jet lagged. <laughs> <laughs> at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab where she reported on sea level rise, ice mass loss, climate modeling, regional climate impacts, and so on. Laura, first question, as a woman in science, how did you come to science and what were your first starting points? Well, I it's interesting that you ask that because I think that there's a myth going around right now that you have to be into science by the time you're in middle school, like eighth grade. And if you're not deciding to be a scientist by that time, it's too late for you. And it's a big myth in education. And I believe that's totally wrong. Lots of people decide that they want to get into college, get into science when they are in college. And that's what happened to me. And it's part of the reason I became a college professor as well. I taught university level oceanography for 13 years because that's what happened to me when I was a little kid, like in grade school and middle school. I remember my first chemistry teacher, he was really old and he had this horrible ear hair sticking out of his ears and he scared the kids and he would go back into the part of the lab and drink alcohol during class. So that was my first exposure to science and I hated it. But then when I was in university, people are required to take a breadth requirement to just fulfill, you know, a broad liberal arts education. So I decided to take some marine biology class and we were studying sea slugs. 
and slugs seem to be kind of small and, you know, rejected, but they're actually ridiculously beautiful. And it opened my eyes to this kind of delicate, vulnerable part of the planet that was also super beautiful. And I identified with that and I had amazing teachers and it just kind of one thing led to another throughout my university experience. And then I just kind of plunged deeply into earth sciences at that point. It's not every day that I speak to a NASA somehow, you know, connected person. How did you get to that point? Well, I was working at the university at the college, Glendale Community College, and there was an opportunity to do a faculty fellowship at Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So I wrote a proposal. I was teaching oceanography at the time, and in the textbook, there was a single chapter on climate change. And the students really wanted to know more about climate change, and I wanted to teach more about climate change. So I proposed to write a full semester long course on climate change, and that proposal got accepted. So I did a faculty fellowship over at Jet Propulsion Laboratory writing this climate change educational content. And then Mm -hmm. after I was there, you know, it was kind of like this love relationship where they really wanted me and I really wanted them. So the management at Jet Propulsion Laboratory literally created a position for me. It took a while. It took like more than a year for them to create the position, but they did. And then I worked there for 10 years. Well, amazing. I also know that you were selected more than once to travel to Greenland with NASA suborbital campaigns. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience and what did you see there? Well, I mean, going to Greenland was, you know, sort of the highlight of my life and going multiple times, certainly. So, I mean, I could kind of talk again and again and again. I guess I'm trying to figure out which one of the 200 stories to tell. The first one, probably. Say what? (laughs) The first experience was probably the most um, vivid, no? Well, I mean, gosh, there's just so many. How many times did you travel there? I've been up there twice. So I've been to like the southwestern side, and then I've also been in the far, far north. And a NASA suborbital mission, what that is, is a a bunch of science. They take an airplane, a small private plane. In this case, it was a G3, a Gulfstream 3, and they completely strip it. And inside is nothing but scientific instruments. So it's it's virtually a, a flying science laboratory. So the first time I went, we were really flying low over the coast to measure basically every single glacier that goes from the Greenland ice sheet into the ocean because we wanted to measure how quickly the ocean is melting the ice sheet. We know from satellite measurements that the warmer air is melting from the surface of the ice sheet, but nobody had looked at the warmer ocean melting the ice sheet from the glaciers around. So we measured the height of the glaciers and the warmth or the temperature of the water from the surface to the sea floor with these instruments aboard the plane. So, you know, just flying over glacier after glacier was like astoundingly gorgeous. I mean, this happened multiple times during, during the first trip. I also took a trip just alone myself with a guide up to the Greenland ice sheet to see it for the first time. And In my mind before I went, I thought, okay, this is going to be super sad. I'm going to see this thing that's ridiculously beautiful disappearing, melting. And there I was standing in front of this 60 meter high ice sheet. 
and the ice is a hundred thousand years old and you can like see layer after layer of ice going all the way up a hundred thousand years. So what, what happens is Greenland is actually really dry. You think, well, how does all this ice get there? Well, it does occasionally snow there when it snows, it doesn't, or it hasn't in the past melted. So you just get layer after layer after layer building up every season until like you get a two mile deep ice sheet. So I'm at the front edge of this ice sheet and I expect it to be sad. And literally you could see it melting right in front of me. There's a river. So I see the ice sheet and that represents the melting ice sheet represents what's happening right now. But if you look at it, it's a hundred thousand years old. That represents the past. And off to, if I turn my head to the right, I could see the river running off into the ocean. And that represents, well, actually ran off through a fjord into the ocean. And that represents the future, which is sea level rise all around planet Earth. So I was like there in this moment. And I expected that I was maybe going to be melancholy and certainly sad. Maybe I thought that I would cry. But it was so mind-bogglingly beautiful that all I could be was supremely grateful to be alive in this moment right now, appreciating the wonder and the beauty of our planet. And I think that's one of the things that I try to tell people all the time, that we have to keep reminding ourselves what we're fighting for. And it is this beautiful planet. So that's just kind of one story that happened again and again and again in, in different ways of like just being completely gobsmacked and awestruck about, you know, the wonder and the beauty of our very planet. You know, I checked your TEDx talk, I think it was in San Diego, when mm-hmm. uh, you start with meeting your neighbor that has this climate anxiety. And I like the message that you transmitted towards the audience throughout this talk. I would wrap it up as, you know, where there is a risk, there is an opportunity. And now I kind of bump into the same, I'm hearing the same, yes, it's climate change. Yes, it's bad. But it's also, you know, it also reminds us why we are here and what we are fighting for. Speaking of climate change. When do you think we started to have, you as a science communicator, you know that language is very, it's a powerful tool and it's important to choose words properly. At which point of time we started to speak not of the climate change, but rather of climate crisis? Sure. And whether it's, it's valid. Absolutely. Well, I was just asked the same question just two days ago. So I think it's an, an excellent question. The climate crisis isn't new. It's always been a climate crisis. But this is what's happened. In the past, you had both from the journalism side and from the science side, people who spent their decades in their career being focused on their research. So that was their focus. And then, you know, the deniers really have a lot of free time because they're not really doing any research to just kind of come up with these catchy phrases and and framing. And it's only been recently that science communicators have really put themselves forward with enough kind of knowledge and background and information to understand how to communicate what's happening better than they have in the past. So the climate, it's always been a climate crisis. What's new is that the communication side has been better at framing what's been happening this whole time. So you agree it's a climate crisis, not just a climate change? Sure, it's a climate crisis. It's a climate emergency. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Especially the longer we wait to take action. 
Speaking of actions, there is a research going on, especially you're now based in Pasadena, California. Am I right? So yeah, there's research. You, in you're Pasadena. in the epicenter of research of, you know, not the opposite of climate deniers. So people who are actually doing something. Sure, what climate can... researchers, climate scientists, earth scientists, not just Pasadena, but certainly in D.C. and across Europe, there's climate researchers, scientists in Pennsylvania, all over mm -hmm. the world that we connect, we share data and stories. But how about those ordinary citizens that are, I don't know, like me, sitting home doing some some work, working in any other sectors other than research, what can they do if they experience climate anxiety, just like your neighbor from the talk, and they are running around, I don't know what to do, how can I be helpful? What kind sure. of advice could you give to them? Well, it starts out where we have to know as citizens, as people who live here on planet Earth together, right, a global community, that we can't sit around helplessly waiting for scientists to come save us. And now's the time for all of us to really start to ignite our own inner science spark. And the inner science spark is something like if you're born as a human, right, so all humans have this innate curiosity. So if you are curious about the world around you, if you want to understand how the world works, that's science, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. maybe not everybody is interested in having a profession as a scientist or being a science researcher, but that doesn't mean that we can't own our inner science spark and understand the world around us using critical thinking and, and logic. So the first thing to do is if you're sitting there thinking, and this this was probably the number one thing that I heard when I told people or people found out that I worked at NASA, they were like, oh, well, I used to love science when I was a kid, or I'm not a scientist, I'm not a math person, I'm not a science person. So the first thing that you can do, that everybody should do, that everybody needs to do, is to reframe our thinking about who we are and what we can be. So reclaim yourself as a scientist right? Even if you're not uh, having a job as a scientist, you are a scientist if you seek to understand the world around you using critical thinking. So that's number one. And then once you kind of claim that, we all get to participate in the important conversations that are happening right now in our communities about, you know, what to do about these things. So for example, I've joined a number of environmental groups. So that's everything from the Buy Nothing Project to local community environmental groups. I got a position with my city council on the sustainability commission. I'm in gardening groups and zero waste groups. And I did a waste warriors project. So those are all things that are in my community. And they're all things that bring me joy because I think one of the, you know, you mentioned earlier that I really strongly believe that every challenge is actually you know, disguised as an opportunity or every opportunity mm -hmm. is disguised as a challenge. Really, they're, they're kind of both the same. And one of the, the things that I find so much that it's true about America is that we're conditioned to believe that more and more material stuff is going to make us happy. And it's just not true, especially now around the holidays, you see like this, you know, push for consumerism and more and more and more and more, more so people live in these big houses and they're isolated and alone. And what really brings people true joy is interacting in community. And so all these 
things that I've really started because I wanted to work in my own community to fight against the problems of the climate crisis have actually ended up bringing me huge amounts of joy being able to know so many of my neighbors. And like my girlfriend comes over, literally, who, who lives near me, and we both do composting and she brought some worms and some chicken poo and we dug it into the ground around my fruit trees. And, you know, I, of all the material possessions that I wanted most in the world, it was worms and chicken poo because that was what brought me the most joy to see my garden flourish and to have relationships with, you know, strong women in my own community. Yeah. I'm on my way this year. Actually, in January, I started the zero waste experiment in my own apartment. And I'm coming, I'm coming to that organic compost and, and worms point very soon. Yeah. So composting is so easy. It's just one of those things, you know, everybody has to take in addition to, you know, joining all these communities, everybody has to take responsibility for their own behavior. And composting is one of those things where, you know, maybe you think, oh, what, I have to learn something, I'm going to study something that's going to be hard. And it's literally the easiest thing you can do. Food waste makes up about a quarter of what ends up in the landfill. Yeah. And it's completely mm -hmm. unnecessary because those trucks that carry the trash to the landfill, so about a quarter of what ends up in the garbage truck that goes to the landfill is food waste. And remember those garbage trucks, they're not fuel efficient. They're very energy consumptive. And so once food waste gets to the landfill, it doesn't break down the same as it breaks down in your compost digested by worms. It gets so compressed. There's, it's not aerated properly, so it turns into methane gas, which is even more toxic for the environment. So the simple task of composting, and that's whether you have a yard or whether you do like worm composting in an apartment, can really decrease a lot of the greenhouse gases. And on top of it, you get all this really healthy, nutrient-rich soil. We are now speaking of the household little actions, but in the global scene, how effective are composting turning to zero waste compared to what companies are responsible for? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, I just want to say that little actions aren't little and all of those seemingly small drops add up. So we don't want to belittle or undermine any of those small actions. There are 7 billion people on planet Earth or more than that. So if everybody did their share, it could make a huge difference. So let's, let's not do that. But yeah, it, it's going to take everybody. And I, I think that you know, corporate change is made because the, the consumers demand it. I was just working on a project. Remember, I said I'm all in, about in community. So I was working on zero waste piece and we worked to do a campaign called Cut Out Cutlery. And mm -hmm. it was asking those food delivery services like Grubhub and Uber Eats to make cutlery, plastic cutlery opt in. So instead of automatically having plastic cutlery delivered with your food, because mostly the food's being delivered to your home or office, everybody already has cutlery. Exactly. So that was public pressure and Uber Eats changed it globally. So now in, if, when you order, if you want plastic cutlery delivered with your food, you have to check a box. It's and not automatic. It. Say again? And pay for it. 
And yeah, exactly. So this is the kind of thing that, you know, big companies will bend to consumer pressure. And we just, again, it's, it's like you think it's a really small action, signing a letter or a petition or doing a hashtag, but those kinds of things do add up. This was the Habits of Waste is the group that I was working with to do the cutout cutlery campaign. And they're still working on more more projects. So, you know, you don't need to wait around for somebody else to come and fix it. If everybody, you know, take starts to either join a group or if there is no group, you start your own group. And, you know, there's so many examples of individuals starting something that, you know, Greta... Tinberg so, is exactly. another huge example of one person starting something that turns into a massive movement. And that's the kind of opportunity I think that our society needs to really shift from a, into a different value system. We can say probably that it takes one pieced person to start moving mountains. It has to start somewhere. Yeah, and change. Might as well be with, you know, with each, you know, might as well be with me. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Greta, I noticed something, at least in the Ukrainian society where I'm based, that instead of turning people to pro-climate change, like to turning them into active citizens, the society in fact divided into, oh no, the message was delivered so badly that now I doubt even what I already knew, and those who were even more convinced. How is it in the US? Do you see the same patterns? Well, so, you know, working in climate change for so many years, I've definitely experienced a push from, you know, we call them the climate deniers. So everything from really aggressive hate mail was some of the first experience I had. And still you brought up my TED talk. If you read the comments, Mm -hmm. you can see that many of them are, most of them are extremely, you know, angry and hate filled. Until most recently, I was hosting a podcast for the Weather Channel. It's coming out. I'm not exactly sure the date. It's called The Big Lie. And they had me guest host one of the episodes where I literally went to the Trump Hotel to a climate denier conference to interview these climate deniers and find out, you know, who are these people Mm -hmm. that hide behind their computer and spew out hate and disinformation? And the truth is, is that it was a super small conference, not very many people, but they're super well organized. And I think I mentioned this earlier, climate scientists spend decades doing research and climate communicators spend decades, you know, working on their messages. But these climate deniers, what their focus is, is just spreading misinformation. So even a small group of them can be highly well organized because that's what their main focus is. And so they've been just basically spreading a lot of inf- spreading misinformation and confusing people. And I can tell you that I, when, when I was there, I saw them. They were all extremely old. I'm talking about white hairs and canes and stooped over. There was no young people. And white, you know, predominantly, vast majority, white, male, and old. And the way I see this is that there's fear of change and fear of something new. And this is kind of common a lot of elderly people have a hard time with change. And I'm not talking about climate change. I'm talking about with like moving away from fossil fuel type change, you know, so embracing yeah. new technologies, right? Give somebody who's 80 a brand new type of technology. Give somebody who's eight new type of technology and see who adapts quicker, right? Just young people are mm-hmm. just more adaptable, more, more comfortable with innovation. 
So I think part of the whole denier complex is just old people clinging to the past because they're uncomfortable with innovation. And it's sad because it's worse than sad. It's horrible because the older people have benefited financially from burning fossil fuels, but yet, you know, they're trashing the economy and the environment for the next generations. It's mind-bogglingly selfish. And, you know, I, you know, on behalf of the older people of planet Earth, I apologize to the next generation for, you know, the greed of, you know, our ancestors. But, you know, the younger generation is going to have to suffer through the consequences and also be strong enough to make the changes that the older generations aren't willing to make. Speaking of the changes, what can it be? What kind of change can be brought to the scene? So there's kind of two ways that we burn fossil fuels predominantly. One is through transportation and the other is through power generation, right? So you've got power plants and cars. And already the technology is in place to completely electrify the transportation grid. The other cool thing about mobility is that cars don't last that long compared to power plants, right? Mm -hmm. So the iPhone, for example, is like less than a dozen years old. I think something right around 12 years old is the iPhone. And you think of how quickly that new technology got adopted into the society. So I, it's almost unimaginable to me that we're still going to be having combustion engine in cars in a decade. I mean, it's, it's already done. You know, there's so many car companies that have already committed to only doing electric vehicles. We've got now electric trucks. And I, I was just at a conference last week, the Smart City World Expo Congress in Barcelona, where they were showcasing electric garbage trucks. So there's, we're going to have an electric transportation society very, very quickly. The other really cool thing that I remember seeing there was this carport. It was beautiful. And it was just very modular, very modern, super futuristic looking, very beautiful. And it was all made of solar panels. And you could just pull your car right in there and plug your electric car in so that you're powering your car just with solar. And so that was super impressive. And I I do think that that technology is already in place. It's just a matter of will and a little bit of time to flip over in the same way that, I mean, nobody wants a dial Mm -hmm. rotary phone anymore. Yes. We're all switched to mobile. The bigger challenge is power plants. So it's not a case by case basis. It's you have to have a whole city wide, let's say, invest in a power plant. And a power plant, instead of a car that lasts about a decade, a power plant lasts about 50 years. So the power plants that are being built today, many people alive today won't even live long enough to see where they reach the end of their life lifespan. So as long as we're burning natural gas, which is what's happening, they're fighting right now in the city where I live to phase out natural gas, but then what are they going to replace it with? Renewable energy. And I know that Ukraine, it's been in the news, the big natural gas line from Russia, and that's what everybody is fighting over now. So to be able to move away from burning natural gas which is a fossil fuel, which releases greenhouse gases, and to electrifying the power grid, I think is one of the biggest challenges for two reasons. One is because those power plants last a really long time. And two is because we have to come together as a community 
because it's not up to one individual whether they're going to buy a power plant or not. Certainly individuals can put solar panels on their roofs if you are in a situation both financially and like if you're not an apartment dweller or something where you're not in charge of your own roof. But I think ultimately that's that's the next really big challenge to face. So technology is going to save us. I mean, two things. Yes, we can't. Technology will save us, you know, as it has, you know, as humans. But also, I think we can't just say, I'm going to keep everything exactly the same and only change technology. As I said earlier, we're going to have to change our value system and decide what's really important. Because just buying more, 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 and it's not just climate change is the problem. We have plastic pollution. We have a Pacific garbage patch that's growing, and there's garbage patches in every part of the ocean. This is basic, can I swear? Yes. This is basic bullshit consumerism that is trashing the environment. We're consuming more planets than we have to live on. So to me, the big opportunity with this climate crisis is to really reevaluate what we want as a society and how we can be. And, you know, a lot of times when we frame sustainability as giving something up, right? Mm -hmm. But really, we're not giving anything up. We're gaining free time. We're gaining mental clarity. We're gaining a clean house. You know, like how many times, like, have you looked, I don't know where you live, but for all of you listening right now, you look around your house and there's tons of clutter and it's just all this stuff. It's like, who wants all these gifts wrapped in too much paper that you've got to deal with? And then you've got all these tchotchkes everywhere and things you don't want and the stress of having to buy a gift for everybody. It's just an awful you know, and can you imagine if we just didn't have any of that and we just had like healthy, wonderful relationships, connection, which is what we really, what we're trying to say when we give a gift isn't about the gift. It's about, I care about you and let's connect. What if we just got rid of all the materialism and we had the, I care about you, let's connect instead. You know, the rise of Marie Kondo is not just an accident. People buy, I totally agree. Yeah, people buy yeah, people more are more. tired of yeah, exactly. people are tired of the clutter, and they want more. When I have a clean, like right now, I've, I'm looking, I'm sitting in my office, and I'm looking at the wall. That's there's a fireplace and some art and a couple of statues from India that I brought home, and it looks super like clean and open and spacious. And if it was cluttered with a bunch of junk from everywhere. It doesn't give a person mental peace. It doesn't give you a sense of relaxation. It doesn't give you a a sense of freedom. And so instead of thinking about having less stuff and feeling like we're missing something, we have to start thinking about having more peace of mind, more openness, more space, more sense of relaxation. That's what we stand to gain instead of thinking about what we stand to lose. Yeah. So technology and minimalism. In a way, minimalism or a reframing of values, a reframing of what's important. You know, if I don't have to beat myself up to work a million hours so that I can get more money to buy more stuff, you know, that's not a way to live. And people are not happy with that. What they really want is more time with the people they love. Mm -hmm. That's what they want. Coming back to the climate change, climate crisis issue, when, when we say crisis, it really adds anxiety even to me. Do we have time? And how much time do we have as humans on planet Earth? 
Okay. I like to frame it like this. If you think of this climate crisis as a war, right? Mm -hmm. We are going to lose some battles. So there's areas, let's say, in the Keys of Florida that we won't be able to save. There are some areas in New York that we won't be able to save. There are some areas in Bangladesh that won't be saved. This is all due to sea level rise. So I'm, I'm just listing some areas. Maybe parts of New Orleans, are, the city is already smaller than it was before Hurricane Katrina. So some battles will be lost. And it could get as bad as where we lose a, some percentage of the population of humans. I mean, we had that, you know, in the dark ages mm -hmm. where disease took so many of our population, right? I mean, it, it could get to the point where it's really that bad. And the truth is that everybody dies, right? We're all going to die. So the question is, am I going to die? Well, of course, you're going to die. We're all going to die. That's the truth of it. But how many other species are we going to take down? How much of the planet are we going to destroy before we wake up and move to a newer, green, renewable energy future where we're not over-consuming and we're not dumping all kinds of toxic pollution into our environment? How bad does it have to get before people go, okay, I'm woken up now. I, I have to change. Mm -hmm. And how long, according to you, as a scientist? Well, I mean, it's, it's not like going to be one day you snap your fingers. Yeah. It's already started, right? We've already lost some areas. Already species are going extinct. Already areas have been like right, right near where I live. There was a, a big fire about two weeks ago, right near the Hollywood sign. Mm -hmm. So already things have been lost. Last year, there was that big paradise fire in California where not, you know, life and property already lost. I believe there's fires in Australia right now. So it is already begun, right? Mm -hmm. But what do you do in your life when you face a big challenge? I know what I do. Giving up isn't an answer. So most people that I listen to, right, when I, when I go out and do a lot of public speaking and a lot of, you know, interviewing myself, and when I, when I talk to people, I also listen. And those are the two things. It's like the ex extreme panic is one. Or freaked out so much that they just have to go eat a tub of ice cream or watch a reality TV show, can't even bear to look at it. And neither of those are solutions, right? So we have to have the courage to stand and see the truth and to not give up and to keep working. All right. One last question. Please give one advice for the women specifically in science, in science communication, in sustainability, in climate change areas. As a person with the with this very interesting career path, you seem very bold and ambitious. What would you suggest other women do? Yeah, I mean I guess I wish when I was younger that I'd had more support, believed in myself more. This was about two years ago. I was at Jet Propulsion Laboratory and a male colleague called me into his office and he said, hey, we made this new video. What do you think about it? And he showed me the video and it's this video for students kind of encouraging them to participate in science. And I, I said to him, well, there's no women in it. And he said, oh, I hadn't even noticed. So I got like really, really angry. The people don't even notice when there's no women there. So I think it's always going to be the most difficult to be the first one. It's always going to be hardest when there, you're like one or two women in the room. But you have to remember that if you're the first one, you're also paving the way for the next one and the next one and the next one after it. 
So I've always worked really hard to like bring in women interns when I was at JPL, always standing up for the other women, always making sure they felt comfortable and confident, and also just kind of realizing what the challenges are. I mean, sometimes I think women in our society, we grow up thinking that we have to be polite and nice and sweet and, you know, please everybody. And to even just look at the truth of that. And like, I, not only do I do it for myself, I have to remind all my girlfriends that it's like, that's who we are. We're taught that behavior. And sometimes just seeing the truth of it and you go, oh, right, that's not me. That's just the brainwashing of our society to tell women to behave like that. And we do see more female strong role models. We see somebody like a Nancy Pelosi as a strong woman role model. So I think the more women we see in the media, the more women that we see in prominent positions, it's going to be better for everybody. Science is sorely lacking in that regard, but you know, we, we'd be gone. And, and when I look at like the, if you look at the age distribution, a lot of the older people tend to be men, but a lot of the younger people starting out are women. So that to me is super encouraging. Great. We should be a little bit more dangerous. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Take risks, take risks. I mean, I'm, you know, and you know, find people who support you and believe in you and take risks. All right. Super. Thank you very much for this uh, encouraging and very interesting talk. This was Laura Tannenbaum, the science communicator and the climate change, how shall I say, communicator? Yeah, a climate communicator, climate change communicator, earth science communicator. And a scientist. An advocate for making a difference in this world. Yes. Thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you. If you like the podcast, please leave a review, rate, comment on the platform you're listening on. It helps other people to discover the podcast. Thank you again for listening and until next episode, take care and stay sustainable.